travel restrictions simplified. If you live in the, on the North Shore, that's your local area. Stay in that area. New details on how the guidelines will be enforced on roads and on ferries. The last arrivals from India. For my three-day hotel quarantine, I'm going to exchange Hotel Vancouver now. The hotspot threat and why a double mutant variant of COVID could be so dangerous. And bombshell details from a ruling against IHIT. How the collapse of a road rage murder case uncovered deep systemic problems. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. BC's new COVID-19 travel restrictions are causing a lot of concern and some confusion. Under the rules which went into effect today, the province has been broken up into three regions. Non-essential travel between those regions isn't allowed. But as Richard Zussman reports, there are still a lot of questions surrounding the enforcement side of the new stay local regulations. It's long been the recommendation, now it's the law. The time has come to formally restrict non-essential travel. The province laying out the rules Friday, splitting the province into three large regions. Borders you can't cross for non-essential reasons. Vancouver Island one, Interior and the North combined into another, and Fraser and Coastal making up the metro region. But even if it's not against the law, some communities like Squamish, Whistler and Pemberton asking those in their region to stay away. It's not the time to be welcoming visitors to our community. The province encouraging camping and other outdoor activities, but close to home. The Porto Cove campsite near Squamish full, even though the community wants people to stay out. If you live in the, on the North Shore, that's your local area. Stay in that area. I live in the Tri-Cities. Um, I'm not going to be going uh, to White Rock. That we don't want to see um, that kind of intermingling of our communities at this point in time where not enough of us are vaccinated. Okay, thank you. Have a safe night. It's $575 fine for breaking the rules. The province expected to set up planned, not random, road checks on regional boundaries. The National Police Federation responding with this statement. Many of our members are opposed to this proposal as it puts them at risk of public backlash, legal ambiguity and risk of COVID exposure. We have been working very closely with uh, uh, the police, the RCMP here in British Columbia uh, and uh, the chiefs of police on how uh, the, the order uh, can work. And although it's not part of the law, the province hoping that accommodation rental companies and hotels will cancel bookings for anyone coming from outside of the community. I implore British Columbians to understand, please don't look for why this rule doesn't apply to you. As for the Alberta border, signs are going up to discourage non-essential travel, but Albertans can't be fined unless they cross BC regional boundaries not provincial ones. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. One of the key choke points for stopping non-essential travel is the BC Ferries Network. Under the new rules, Vancouver Island is now a standalone region with limits and exceptions governing who will or won't be allowed to travel on the ferries. Aaron MacArthur is live at Horseshoe Bay Terminal. Aaron, I understand the union representing BC Ferries workers has some concerns about having to enforce these new rules. Yeah, sure they do. It's not really their job. While BC ferry workers have the authority to enforce the essential travel order, they don't want to deal with a belligerent public. The ferries are running, 
Not many cars in line. Starting Friday, only essential trips allowed to and from the island. If they're not traveling for essential purposes, we're now empowered uh, to uh, deny them travel. BC Ferries now has a new box to check for reservations online, and ticket agents will ask if the trip is essential. But it's up to individuals to be honest. Ferry workers not expected to enforce this order. It is still very much an honor-based system. According to the Ferry Workers Union, Friday morning there was already at least one altercation when a driver didn't appreciate being questioned about the nature of their trip. Travelers can expect sporadic roadblocks over the next five weeks near the ferry terminals. Ferry workers are going to feel a lot more comfortable if we know police are on hand to deal with unruly customers, unruly passengers. Uh, and if police are around to do enforcement, then uh, asking the questions will be made a lot easier for them. When the Premier prematurely hatched this plan, it was suggested all RV and camper reservations would be cancelled until the May-long weekend. Ferries now says everyone with an existing reservation will be contacted over the next five weeks to determine if their journey qualifies as essential. If not, they will be refunded their money. What we're, we're trying to identify is the reason for travel and not the vehicle. So working with the province, it's been agreed that if the RV is traveling for essential purposes, it goes like any other vehicle. Not only are passengers being restricted, but so is the schedule. No additional sailings will be added until after May 25th. Some interesting numbers about ferry traffic over the last little while. They were creeping up towards the Easter long weekend and while still down, they were down only about 30% of normal. That's since gone down to about 50% of normal. And according to the ferry CEO, that number needs to come down even further if that essential order is really enforceable. Sophie, Chris. Well, we'll see if it does. Thanks for that, Aaron. All right, let's take a look at today's numbers. We have 1,001 new cases, bringing BC's total to 123,758. 8,842 of those cases are active, and 12,608 people are in self-isolation. 486 people are in hospital, 160 of those patients in the ICU. That's down a bit, and sadly, four more people have died. We'll bring in Keith Baldry now, who has at least some positive things or some positive things to highlight among those daily numbers. Keith? Yeah, these numbers are relentless. They come at us every single day. A lot of bleak scenarios uh, being sketched. But I thought I'd end the week by pointing out on a few health indicators, things are actually going in the right way. So first of all, on the daily case numbers, we do a seven-day average. That's been going down for a week, down 7% in the space of a week. Sort of stalled out today, matching yesterday's number. Active cases down by even more, down 12% in the space of a week. Self-isolation, those people in self-isolation down a pretty big number, 22% fewer as fewer as people have fewer contacts. Our positivity rate went up a little bit today, but by and large, it's been declining by more than a point over the past couple of weeks. And one final note, even though we had 456 people in hospital today, or 486 people in hospital, uh, this is the first time in about three weeks where we've seen the daily hospitalization number actually go down from day to day. And in terms of people actually going into hospital, as I keep pointing out, the daily uh, number doesn't reflect how many people actually go into hospital a day. We had 49 people going to hospital today. And that's down as well from the numbers we've seen for previous days. So hopefully the trend continues into next week. Three days of numbers on Monday. Hopefully they're not very big. All right. Thank you very much, Keith. Have a good weekend. Yeah.
Passenger flights from India and Pakistan have ended at least for the next month, thanks to rising COVID case numbers there and a troubling new variant. It's also due to a high number of positive cases on arriving flights, with some passengers caught with fake health documents. Sarah McDonald has the story. They're among the last air passengers to touch down on Canadian soil directly from India or Pakistan for at least the next month. Lucky. I'm going to exchange Hotel Vancouver for my three-day hotel quarantine. Yeah, I'm going to isolate. How long for? 14 days. These travelers from Delhi making it just in the nick of time as federally imposed travel restrictions targeting COVID-19 hotspots went into effect on Friday. Let us remember that Canada already has in place some of the strongest measures of any of our peer countries around the world. So how exactly do COVID-19 positive travelers from a wide range of countries and continents and those variants of concern keep arriving in Canada? In the last two weeks alone, dozens of confirmed cases have been detected in air travelers arriving at Vancouver International Airport. All of those passengers ultimately found to be carriers of COVID-19 required to produce a negative test result taken within 72 hours of departure before boarding. But Canadian border officials confirm not all of those certificates are genuine. With more than a dozen travelers found to be in possession of suspected fraudulent test results at Canadian airports of entry since those new travel restrictions came into effect. Some three dozen suspected forged documents intercepted at land borders over the past 10 weeks. What we need to ensure is that people who are returning to this province are in fact abiding by the quarantine rules and the feds put the resources and the enforcement necessary to ensure that that continues to take place. It's impossible to know how many fraudulent documents could be making their way here from international destinations. But British government officials say in the United Kingdom, border guards are busting more than 100 travellers with fake test results on a daily basis. What I would suggest is that more resources be put into creating a system where you can't use those, um, you know, those fake certificates. Public health expert Kelly Lee says the federal government must work more efficiently with provinces. The worst case scenario is we have a variant where the vaccines don't work against. With hundreds of travelers arriving in Canada found to be flouting federal testing or quarantine mandates this month alone, despite the risk of six-figure fines and prison time. Sarah McDonald, Global News. All right, we're going to take a, uh, a very quick break and be back with much more right after this. Bombshell discoveries about the integrated homicide investigation team. A Global News investigation sparked by a bungled road rage murder case reveals the mistakes and policies that might put a number of murder cases and convictions in jeopardy. That's next on the News Hour. Nature gets a helping hand. What a caribou researcher discovered that could help save this endangered herd. Coming up later on the News Hour. And high wire rescue. BC Hydro crews free a stuck osprey. That's later. Right now, though, we are learning some stunning new details tonight about a BC Supreme Court ruling first revealed by Global News that raises some serious questions about how the integrated homicide investigation team has handled evidence. The ruling led to the acquittal of a man charged with murder and has possibly cast a shadow over countless more homicide cases. Romina Dea reports. You could hear the victim's screams as her new husband, Manbir Kajla, an innocent man, lay dying on the road. 
Graphic audio allegedly of the shooting inadvertently captured on a cell phone from a pocket dial. That crucial evidence thrown out in March. As a result, Samandeep Gill was acquitted of second-degree murder and attempted murder last month. The story of egregious misconduct by IHIT, detailed in the judge's ruling, which has finally been made public almost two months after Justice Masuhara made his decision. The first major concern, how IHIT obtained evidence seized from Gill's home in May 2011, weeks after the shooting. Police had a warrant for one iPhone, but seized nine phones plus home video surveillance. Troubling for the judge, former IHIT officer Staff Sergeant Gorgachuk's testimony that it was common practice for police to seize all phones at a location when it was unclear which ones, if any, were those described in a warrant. This indicates a level of institutional and systemic disregard for the standard of reasonable and probable grounds. Another disturbing revelation, how long the evidence was held, almost seven years, which was against the law. The overholding resulted from a clear, deliberate decision of IHIT leadership to direct non-compliance with the mandatory provisions, said Masuhara, adding that the direction continued for many years, despite the police having sought legal advice from three senior counsel. The judge hammering Gorgachuk's testimony, saying he did not find her to be a credible witness. I found that she engaged in advocacy and that she refused to acknowledge errors in her testimony, even when confronted with clear evidence. While I found that she fell short of intentionally misleading the court, her testimony was nonetheless misleading, combative, and at times contradictory. The shocking crux of the Gill case is that despite IHIT holding the phones illegally for years, the crucial evidence collected dust and was never looked at until another agency, the RCMP's Unsolved Homicide Unit, took conduct of the file in 2016 and uncovered the phone audio in 2018 after seeking the appropriate court order. The Crown alleges that the iPhone seized from the accused's residence contains an audio recording of the shooting of Mr. Kajla and the attempted shooting of his wife. The Crown theory is that one of the two BlackBerry phones made the phone call to the iPhone that recorded the murder. The judge said it was a difficult decision to exclude the evidence, but to allow it would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Kajla's family waiting to hear if there will be an appeal. Romina Dea, Global News. A rally and street party is scheduled to get underway right about now outside a Kitsilano restaurant, which has made headlines for defying COVID-19 orders. Our Paul Johnson is in Kits, just outside Corduroy Restaurant. Paul, we hope that the crowd there will keep it together while we report on their message. I hope so, too. Yeah, um, as you can see, um, there is a rally that's taking place across the street from us. Probably have a few dozen people there right now. A number of the demonstrators, though, have crossed the street. You can see them behind me. They're trying to block us from actually covering this demonstration. So the organizer of this demonstration is Rebecca Matthews. She's the owner of the Corduroy Restaurant. That's one of two restaurants in Vancouver that defied public health orders 
a short time ago and was pretty quickly shut down. She declined an opportunity to talk the to us on camera. She feels she's misrepresented by the media. And she says the intent the of this rally is to support businesses that are facing bankruptcy because of the pandemic restrictions. So I asked her how she would respond to the many the people who are going Barringer to see this video and say this event is totally irresponsible. She said, no comment, but our Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, is pretty the blunt in his characterization of events like this. Here's what he had to say. It's very frustrating to see the uh, the usual suspects, a small minority of what are literally COVIDiots that have completely, I think, just uh, disgusted uh, most British Columbians that they are just uh, so so flagrantly disrespectful of the health of other people, so flagrantly disrespectful of the need to uh, to work together uh, to defeat this pandemic. And frankly, they have absolutely no credibility with the vast majority of uh, British Columbians who are doing the right thing. So one big question here, obviously, with the events the of this week Derringer in British Columbia, with the announcement that the police would be involved in stopping Derringer people from moving around the provinces, what they're going to do about a the demonstration like this. And I can tell you, Vancouver police are here. They're watching carefully. I think it's probably not likely that they're going to dive into this, given some of the, the behaviors that we're seeing Derringer here. But they're just going to try to strike this careful balancing act, let these people the make their case. Derringer Hopefully the virus doesn't spread and walk away at the end of the day. The great full marks, full marks, and huge respect to you, Paul, for uh, maintaining your concentration with that going on right behind you. Very much appreciated. Yeah, well done. Yeah. All right, up next, a sewer problem that really stinks for homeowners. Oh, it's huge. So our cash isn't rolling. We got all our life savings into it. How an oversight by city officials is creating a scandal in Campbell River. And the deadline for moving day at Strathcona Park is getting closer. What's next for residents of Vancouver's most notorious tent city? Looks like police are conducting a road check here in Burnaby. It's affecting eastbound traffic on Kingsway at Patterson. Save time, shop online with Save on Foods, then swing by for free curbside pickup or have it delivered to your door. Shop faster, shop easier in the Save on Foods app. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Kingsway and Patterson in Burnaby. With a week to go before the deadline to have Vancouver Strathcona Park cleared of campers, there are still hundreds of people still without a place to go. But as Jordan Armstrong reports, residents of the nearby neighborhood are cautiously optimistic in light of the progress that has been made. I don't know if they want to be filmed either. A week before the planned end of the encampment, some sections of Strathcona Park feel as lawless and as dangerous as ever. Okay. We're actually on unceded territory. As we were shooting video on a public sidewalk across the street from the park, our news crew was surrounded by a group of young people who told us they have no plans to leave. What are you trying to hide? Why can't we see oh what's going God. on? Oh. Dozens of tents remain. And while we were there, more items were being moved into the park than out. Still, neighbors say they've received assurances from governments that there are enough homes for everyone who wants one. And the April 30th deadline to decamp remains. We're really hopeful that the transition goes smoothly and peacefully. 
Um, and that's what, um, you know, we're really, um, you know, we're kind of waiting with bated breath. BC Housing insists progress is being made, with 70 people moved indoors since October. 11 on Thursday alone. These are fluid situations. We anticipate that it's at least a couple more hundred people to move inside based on the housing applications that we have. But what will happen if some refuse the housing on offer and try to stay put after April 30th? That's a great question. Uh, you know, our partners uh, at the parks have the final say. But no one from the Vancouver Park Board would do an interview Friday. We were also hoping to bring you the perspective of the park's truly homeless. There is no oh, yeah. plan. There isn't. But our attempt to hear their voices was quite literally blocked. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. The province is stepping in to preserve a senior's home in Vancouver's Chinatown. Residents of the Grace Seniors Home grew concerned when a new owner bought the building and told them they'd have to leave. The new owner later recanted, but the situation caused a lot of uncertainty. Now the province is putting an end to the indecision. It is buying the building at 333 Pender and turning over operations to the group success. That means existing Chinese language and cultural programs will continue at the home. 20 families in Campbell River can't move into their new homes because of an overloaded sewer system. The city says the old pipes are at capacity and until they can find a solution, occupancy permits are not being issued. As Kylie Stanton reports, that's left angry homeowners wondering how this could have happened. It's done. Ready to move into, yeah? He spent nine months watching the walls go up and windows go in. But now that his home is ready, Chris Staffenson's dream is going down the toilet. It's hard to fathom. I mean, when it's ready to go, he said, they say, no, you can't go in there. It's crazy. Staffenson was told by City Hall his occupancy permit won't be granted because the city's sewage lines can't handle any more homes in the area. This, despite building permits being issued without question putting out not only homeowners, but builders as well. So our cash isn't rolling, we got all our life savings into it, like I say, and we can't do anything with it. It's all tied up in these lots that we can't even move. I mean, there's, there's been some serious mismanagement going on down at the city of Cannell River. It's unbelievable. Right now, 20 building files are affected by the situation in the Maryland neighborhood, but construction on other lots, like this one purchased by Lindsay Ness, could also be put on hold. With her current home sold and all money tied up here, there's no backup plan. This is our dream, and just to be told that we can't do it because of poor city planning is just, is just sad. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, we certainly understand that frustration. City officials say it's not clear how the oversight happened, but its focus is on finding a solution. It's now working with an engineering firm to determine the next steps. Is it a, a situation where the, the, the high flows are being caused by uh, something that was unanticipated? Or is there a problem that we can fix that will reduce the flows? Or is it a matter of us having to replace some of the pipes to provide more capacity? So those are the, the answers that we're looking for right now. The city expects to have an assessment by next week, but the timeline from there is still very much up in the air, much like Staffinson's move-in date. At this point, it's safe to say sewage has hit the fan. I think you're all a bunch of incompetent fools. You know, get it together, figure it out. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A BC wildlife biologist appears to have shown that feeding endangered caribou high-quality food can increase their population. 
Doug Hurd has spent the last six years feeding the Kennedy siding caribou herd in the interior. He says the herd, which has bordered on extinction, is on the upswing. We started with 47 animals at Kennedy Siding and then we went up to 87 animals. This difference looks like it is real. This increase in Kennedy Siding numbers compared to the numbers increasing at Quintet was real and appears to be due to the supplemental feeding. The work that he's been able to achieve at Kennedy Siding has been um, a really dedicated effort to understand a herd that we have access to. And um, that has been uh, opened the doors to so many um, discoveries and, and opportunities. Hurd says while the population growth is good news, there's a lot of work to do to change the environmental factors that have led to the decline of caribou herds in the first place in order to make them more sustainable. Still ahead, the cautionary tale coming out of India. The virus can't evolve into these new variants if there aren't infected hosts. What we're learning from the double mutant variants and why it's never been more crucial to stop COVID now. And the former minister in charge of gaming appears at the Cullen Commission into money laundering. What Mike DeYoung says about the dirty money that didn't stop. Appalling abuse. China. Go back to China where you came from. And growing fear. A lot of Asians are really scared right now. Canada, it's time to talk. Hidden hate, anti-Asian racism. A global news special, Saturday at 7.30. Some delays over here for southbound traffic at the Alex Fraser Bridge with crews on scene in the right lane doing some expansion joint work. You'll see delays here southbound at the south end all weekend. Still driving around on winter tires, drive into Mr. Loop for same-day tire changes. No appointment needed. 15 lower mainland locations. Find one near you at MrLoop.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Alex Fraser Bridge. Another former government minister responsible for gaming took the stand today at the inquiry into money laundering in B.C. That's right. Mike DeYoung contradicted previous testimony that the Liberal government at the time was more concerned with protecting gaming revenue than stopping the flow of suspicious cash through casinos. John Waugh reports. There was no sign the amount of suspicious cash entering casinos was slowing down. In fact, when Michael DeYoung took over the gaming file in 2013, the enhancement of anti-money laundering measures was a main priority. There was certainly an initial uh, awareness identified uh, to me uh, in the documents in the initial uh, briefing. But DeYoung, who was responsible for gaming until 2017, told the Cullen Commission when it came to ordering direct action, the former finance minister heeded the advice of an assistant deputy. Ministers should be careful about interfering in the operational side uh, of gaming. DeYoung said that was also his approach when betting limits were raised to $100,000 a hand shortly after he took over the job. It was the, uh, the lottery corporation in consultation with um, uh, GPEB that ultimately uh, made the decision. Although a witness statement from de Jong's own deputy minister seems to state otherwise. The evidence of Mr. Graydon and Ms. Wenizenki Yoland is that Mr. Graydon contacted you directly to seek approval of the table limit increase. De Jong told the commission he doesn't remember the call. As the new betting limits meant even more shady money making its way to the cash cage, Part of the messaging at the time, according to DeYoung's briefing notes, 
More reporting didn't mean higher risk. The number of suspicious cash transactions that in part uh, that might be uh, explained by uh, greater diligence. Government's main response up to that point pushed players to cash alternatives. It wouldn't be until after the summer of 2015 when $38.5 million in cash was funneled into BC casinos in a single month that De Jong realized more had to be done. Perhaps it should have occurred uh, sooner. Uh, it didn't on the strength of the information I was receiving. While De Jong said it was a former head of the gaming regulator that told him to remain hands-off, GPEB's next general manager told the Cullen Commission he was desperate for the minister to intervene specifically when it came to sourcing suspicious cash based on a certain dollar amount. There's direction now that we don't want to take this money in unless, unless we're sure. De Young explained in this case he was delivering a clear directive. Source funds on a risk-based approach. While this was something that was already being done, he said he expected more than the status quo. The advice at the time uh, again, from all sources, uh, was to uh, was not to provide that level of prescription. De Young was asked about previous evidence that BCLC had flagged that such a measure would result in the loss of hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Were you aware of those concerns? No. Regardless, De Young would credit the new measures as a success, since cash buy-ins at casinos were in decline. But in fact, that had already begun before De Young was alerted to the problem. The former minister, unsure whether a police investigation into suspected casino moneylenders had a direct impact at that time. John Hua, Global News. Canada's ban on flights from India and Pakistan has sparked a new focus on the so-called double mutant variant of COVID-19. And while scientists are still working on fully understanding it, Experts say it does show that if we don't stop the spread of the virus, we could soon be facing a variant that resists vaccines. Linda Ellsworth reports. Let there be no doubt this pandemic is not over. In India, the fastest growing surge of cases to date is all but crippling their healthcare system. The health system is under incredible strain. People are not able to find beds. They are not able to locate necessities like oxygen. There is much speculation and some evidence that a SARS-CoV-2 virus with two mutations is responsible. It's called B1617. According to some scientists, it is, it is likely that that's the cause, but we still have a lot more work to do to establish that. The two mutations have been observed before separately, not together in the same virus, not until now. They appear to be able to evade the immune system better. As well as increase the affinity to the ACE2 binding receptor in humans. So it makes it more easy for it to infect us, basically. We're still learning what they're capable of when combined. What we do know is that a few dozen cases have been detected in Canada, including BC, where the need to observe restrictions that reduce transmission have been kicked up a notch. We need to limit transmission so that by doing that, we're also limiting the opportunities for viral evolution to happen. That's because whether you suffer symptoms or not, every infected person serves as an incubator for the virus, giving it yet another opportunity to mutate. If we let the virus sort of spread uninhibited, we are going to see these new variants come up. We are going to see these challenges continuously reappear. It could happen there or here or anywhere. It's a global issue.
if we can get a significant proportion of the world vaccinated, we are reducing the opportunity for the virus to mutate in this way. In the meantime, as inconvenient as some people seem to think it is, we should wear masks and follow guidelines. If not... It is possible that evolution will progress to the point where there are mutations that invalidate our vaccines. In other words, we start all over again from scratch. Yes. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Up next, hydro crews come flying to the rescue. How they went beyond the call of duty to save a tangled offspring. Also tonight, satellite debris. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, brought to you in part by the BCTF, our kids and their teachers, worth investing in. Well, it was almost chilly today, Christy. <laughs> I know, tough to handle. As I was joking about in uh, in the five o'clock show, it's sweater weather. That's an SNL joke. But uh, yeah, cloud cover across the region right now. I had a look back at the record books just to see, because we had a stretch of weather of 12 days of hot, sunny weather. And uh, when I looked back, we had this same stretch of weather actually last year. It wasn't as hot, but we had 12 days of sunny weather, which was nice for the pandemic times, of course. But yes, rain on the way, which is good news. The plants need it, and so does the forest fire situation. We are well above seasonal or what we would typically see for this time of year in terms of uh, fires. 23 fires right now. One has just gone out of control, and it's because of the uh, gusty winds in the region. Most of the fires in the Kamloops, southeastern, and Caribou region, and we are expecting rainfall, but not not in all regions. And there's that one fire that's uh, out of control northwest of Clinton uh, because of some gusty winds in that area. Now, uh, flood concern is a lot better as well because of the lower temperatures. That's going to continue to be the case throughout the weekend. But as I talked about in terms of rainfall, we're really only going to see rainfall for areas south of Kamloops, or sorry, south of Williams Lake, sort of through the Kamloops area. So in the Caribou region, where they have a number of fires, they are likely not going to see rainfall. Meanwhile, we We will hear, that's for sure, hot and sunny across the north right down into Williams Lake and then south of there, cloud and a big difference in terms of temperature. For our region, we'll see temperatures up to about 10 or 11 degrees tomorrow afternoon. That's a good 15 degrees cooler than what we've been enjoying over the last little while. So it's certainly going to feel very chilly and well below seasonal for this time of year. And tonight's central windows weather window for today is looking out over Abbotsford. Robert and Claudine were flying over the area taking photos of course the beautiful shots of the all the colors in the fields below that's beautiful cool shot thanks very much christy it almost matches the socks i'm wearing i can't i can't (laughs) show them on the air right now but it it actually does all right uh an osprey that found itself caught up in a dangerous situation has a new lease on life thanks to some patient bc hydro crews yeah they got her Ashcroft line crews jumped into action when they found the protected bird dangling from from a bailing wire. It took several hours, but eventually technicians managed to set it free. The osprey is recovering at the BC Wildlife Park in Kamloops. Hydro crews often come across animals on power poles, including this delicate relocation of nests in Salmon Arm. Those nests are just so cool. Well done, crews. Very cool.
I remember doing a story on those crews a few years ago. I will say this, the people who work on those crews have a lot of guts. They a sure lot. do. Yeah, that was when we learned that the green helmets get strung up on the That's lines, right. When right? You see the green helmet, I guess it's the, it's the new guy. Yeah, the rookie guy. Yeah. Okay, so uh, BC's Tristan Connolly, speaking of a guy who has a lot of guts, is fighting tomorrow night on the latest UFC card. It's, everything's coming together perfectly, and I'm so excited to get back doing what I love. He's coming back from neck surgery for his first UFC fight since September of 2019. Wish him luck also tonight. Satellite debris and the danger of voice commands. Well, I guess the win streak had to end at some point. Well, you can't win them all. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, especially this year when you're going to play a team nine times, like Vancouver has to play Ottawa, it'd be pretty hard to go 9-0 and against somebody. So... Last night, the Canucks finally lost to Ottawa. It was 3-0. Uh, they'll play against the Sens tomorrow night at 7. And the Canucks actually might have Tyler Mott back in the lineup for that one, and that will really help. Tyler Mott is a good player. Uh, after last night's game, Thatcher Demko, who did start, said no Canuck is really feeling 100% yet. But Travis Green says that doesn't matter. Fans and media, we can use the COVID excuse, but the Canucks will not. As a coach, I, I already have done that. Uh, kind of tried to do that first game when um, said that we were here to win, and uh, that's that's the mindset. That's uh, what we talk about in the locker room. We, sometimes you're not going to be at your best, and uh, you still got to find ways to win. Flames and Habs tonight. Now, this game was in question because former Canuck Josh Levo of Calgary tested positive for COVID, but they went ahead with the game anyway. Dylan Dubé, the goal there to give Calgary the one nothing lead on Montreal, but Tyler Toffoli again. Providing another nightmare for Canucks Nation. 2-2 after one period, Habs and Flames. Well, the best part about the UFC visit to this town way back in 2019 was local boy Tristan Connolly winning his first UFC fight. Tomorrow in Florida, He'll have his second UFC fight. That's right. It's been that long in between bouts. And just getting back to the octagon for Connolly was a fight in itself. Tristan Connolly's got all of the drive, determination, and toughness you need to succeed in the octagon. But he's had to add a new tool to his toolbox. Patience. In September 2019, Connolly realized a lifelong dream when he was called in as a last-minute replacement at the UFC event in Vancouver. Not only did he pull a major upset, but the Langley resident won Fight of the Night bonus money. His career got the jump start he was looking for. But then COVID hit, and then a neck surgery. So it's been 19 long months since he last fought. But now he's finally back at UFC 261 in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm so excited to get back doing what I love. You know, I've, I've committed my life to this. I've, I've put everything into it. Uh, and to have all the setbacks that I had, you know, I, I never, never gave up. But it, it, was, it, was, it was hard to, you know, go through all that. 
Connolly will fight as a featherweight this weekend, 146 pounds, which is one weight class and 10 pounds lower than usual for him. Cutting that weight is almost more punishing than anything an opponent can throw your way. Yeah, I cut about eight pounds last night and another five pounds this morning. Connolly will gain about 20 pounds back between now and fight time, so he's confident he'll have the strength to beat his opponent, who is favored. But Connolly doesn't mind being the underdog. I would assume that's because of the time away, because time away can really drastically affect people's ability to perform. I'm not worried about that. I don't think it's going to. I feel real confident. I feel real good. Uh, and I am ready to get in there and fight my butt off in 15 minutes. At 35, Connolly knows a win Saturday is needed to keep his UFC dream going. It would also help his young family. Wife Jen and nine-month-old daughter Sydney are back in Langley. He's been away training in the U.S. since January, but they are always on his mind. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, and, uh, you know, just like the dying of dehydration and that first sip of water, seeing my family holding my baby again is going to be the greatest feeling ever. All right, let's watch some uh, tennis, shall we? Uh, quarterfinals, Barcelona, Felix Auger Aliassime against second seed Stefano Sissipas of Greece. Uh, nice backhand here for Felix, but he did lose the opening set 6-3. This really wasn't much of a contest. Sissipas was better on clay than Auger Aliassime, and he will move on to the semifinals. Uh, straight set win, 6-3, 6-3, make that. Rafa Nadal also advanced to the semis. He's actually won this tournament 11 times. And he's not losing sets, he's, to be honest. You would be a heavyweight, right? I think so. Yes. I a would, skinny heavyweight. Uh, yeah, I would be a paperweight. <laughs> what would I be? Flyweight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, Squire. All right, stick around. Satellite Debris is next. So we determined in pre-COVID times I was a straw weight. Now that it's COVID times, I'm a flyweight. <laughs> Make of that what you will. <laughs> you got to look it up. And I am not, I'd be a cruiserweight. You'd be I'm a cruiserweight. not a heavyweight. That sounds I'm, pretty cool, actually. I'm still a paperweight. Uh, okay, so uh, GoPro puts together its best videos every year. And I'm guessing this one was obviously taken before uh, COVID uh, went around the earth. But it is a great look at uh, a Turkish ice cream vendor and all the tricks he can do. Watch this. I miss those days when you didn't have to worry about whether someone had a mask on or not or if he was touching your ice cream cone or not, but things have changed. <laughs> one so. day. Okay, so this one uh, is selling granola. Granola is full of sh That's right. I said the S word, sugar. Now this cereal is brown and boring looking, so it must be healthy, right? Wrong. It's made up of sugar, corn syrup, and caramel coloring. 
or as I like to call it, a load of horse sugar. But you know what really gets my little horse going? Quality grass, hay, and alfalfa. And what gets me going is Lecanto Quito Granola. Don't try that at home, but you can try our granola at home. We have a money-back guarantee if it doesn't satisfy you, but I think it will. Buy now at Lakanto.com. Get along, little horsey. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Here's an old favorite uh, from Central Bahir Insurance. That's it. We're out of time. Have a great weekend, everybody. Good night, all. <laughs>